Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. In this message, Pastor Andy takes a look at Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the events that led up to his crucifixion and resurrection. Enjoy the message. Today we're going to go into one of the biggest days on the church calendar year. It is Palm Sunday. Uh, and if I was to poll each one of us, if I were to take a survey, uh, a number of you would be like, what is Palm Sunday? The thing that would probably come to our minds is uh, people waving palm leaves as Jesus went to Jerusalem. What, what does that mean? What does it mean? What does Palm Sunday mean? Well, I look back at my records, and unless I'm completely missing something here, I don't think I've ever preached, on, preached about Palm Sunday. Ever. How did that happen? Right? Well, usually we're in a, a series, and then we pause for Easter. But unless I'm missing something, and I know there's some, some of you have impeccable memories, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe I've ever preached in my 20 plus years in ministry uh, on Palm Sunday. And I ask myself, honestly, this question, why? Why have I not done that? And then I realized, why? Let me tell you why. <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, my church was going to celebrate Palm Sunday, and they were going to celebrate it by, they had that, this is back in the 1980s, okay, so, so you had the choir, right, you had the choir, they had all had their robes, and they were singing a song, Hosanna, not the Hosanna, that's in the more modern music, but, but Hosanna, where the sopranos were blaring out Hosanna, and they were going to have all the kids from K all the way to 6th grade come through the doors and circle the worship center until the choir was done singing, all right, and so my mom made me do this. I was in second grade, eight years old, and I had to go and wave palm leaves, and I had a really bad attitude about it that morning. And this is so cringe. I'm sorry. This is probably why I've never preached this. Anyway, so so we line up, single file, choirs starting to sing. We come through the center open middle doors, and we begin to wave our branches. I have a bunch of kindergartners in front of me. And in my mind, my eight-year-old mind, which is not very logical, right? Because the frontal lobe hasn't developed yet, right? I, I'm, I'm thinking, they're not going fast enough. This is too slow. This is dumb. And then I had a brilliant eight-year-old idea. I realized, what if I, we have a little fun with this? And so what if I decided to open up a second lane? You know, you when you're down, when you're on some of those roads in Kenosha County and someone's just going 35 miles an hour and a 55, and they're like, are you serious now? Do I really have to practice being a Christian now, right? And so I'm like, why don't I just open up another lane and I just book it and I sprint, right? And so that's what I did. I began to run with my palm leaves. I began to pass all the people in the lines. I believe, just like a game of Mario Kart, I began to lap some of those kindergartners. And what we saw as I was beginning to run like a maniac with my palm leaves is these sweet old ladies that were in the front row, they'd smile when they'd see the young kids, and then they would just frown when they'd see me, right? So that went on for the duration of the song. My parents were so angry at me, and I tripped and fell flat on my face at the end of the song. For my Sunday school teachers that watch me every once in a while, I'm sorry, all right? <laughs> but just even thinking about that story, I realized, wow, I've been triggered every Palm Sunday. Maybe not, but re realizing why haven't I preached on this, this was the first memory that came to my mind. What is Palm Sunday? What is Palm Sunday? It is when the prophesied king would take his rightful place a king not of this world, but to inaugurate the kingdom of God. 
Not by sitting on an earthly throne, no, rather inaugurating by being nailed to a cross. Jesus had a purpose. And this morning, Palm Sunday, is a declaration that we have been entrusted with this purpose. Entrusted with our lives with this purpose. In fact, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we're, we're going to be in Luke this morning, but I'll read this one to you. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it said, for this, this is Jesus speaking, Jesus. For the Son of Man came to seek and saved the lost. This is his mission statement. People try to say Jesus came for all sorts of things. This is why he came. Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. Which later on when he would ascend back into heaven after he resurrected, he'd say, go therefore and make disciples, right? This is clearly our mission, to seek and save the lost. In fact, that's our main point this morning. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So we're going to look at this. Our outline this morning is we're going to look at Jesus' purpose, how Satan opposes the purpose, and our decision, are we going to follow this on purpose? All right, let's go to Luke chapter 19. As Jesus came to seek and save the lost, let's, let's go to uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And the first thing, if you're taking notes this morning, you're going to see is this, is Jesus came for his purpose. Not our purpose, not somebody else's purpose, not to make you feel comfortable, uh, not to turn it into anything else, but he came for his purpose. And the first purpose is this, is to fulfill prophecies. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he said these things, it's Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached uh, Bethagy and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, You'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. So Jesus uh, was about to go into Jerusalem to fulfill prophecies long told of a coming Messiah. Uh, we're told that as he approached uh, Bethagy and Bethany, he sent his disciples ahead to prepare the way of what we call the triumphal entry. Uh, as the disciples go ahead, Jesus stops by Bethany. It's here that some of his closest friends reside. We have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, during this time, women were often on the margins of society, and it was even scandalous to include them. But Mary and Martha played a huge role in the life of Jesus in his ministry. And Lazarus was a dear friend. In fact, just prior to this, Lazarus had died. Uh, they informed Jesus. And the shortest verse in all scripture was, Jesus wept. When Jesus saw that his friend had died, he was overcome with grief. Uh, and in Jesus' miraculous divinity and power... He rose Lazarus from the dead. So this is the first time he's come to visit Lazarus since he was alive again. He's probably like, hey, how you doing? How you looking? All right. And so we see Jesus stopping by to see his friends. Uh, John 19 uh, speaks of this specifically that he met with them on a Sunday, which means according to John chapter 12, verse 12, Jesus wouldn't go into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry until Monday, which means Palm Sunday where we are celebrating it one day early. All right, Jesus would go into Jerusalem on Monday. 
uh, the week where Jewish people would be commemorating the exodus out of Egypt. So the lead up to the cross, uh, the, the Jewish people were celebrating the Passover. Uh, they were celebrating their liberation from Egypt. And the moment that the death angel came and, and, and struck down the Egyptians. And everybody who put the blood on their doorposts were saved. It was a picture of a coming shed blood, shedding of a blood that we would have of our ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. And so people were finding lambs to eat during Passover. But Jesus didn't need a lamb during this Passover. He was going to be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus makes preparation by instructing his disciples to go ahead and get his mode of transportation. Verse 30, Jesus gives specific instructions for his disciples to grab a colt or a donkey. Jesus' instructions is this. If anyone asks, just say, the Lord needs it. Now, come on. When you're reading this, doesn't that just make you laugh a little bit? Like, think about it this way. You go out to the parking lot today. Somebody's sitting in your car. They're hot wiring it. And you're like, hey, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Don't worry. The Lord needs it. The Lord who? The Lord. Oh, okay, right? I, it's just, this makes me laugh. Like, okay, they, they stole their car, basically. And they're like, okay, the Lord needs it. All right, fine. <laughs> I had to say that. It just it's, makes me laugh every time I read it. So Jesus is going to ride on a colt, which seems like an unlikely animal for somebody who's going to ride in as a king. If you're going to ride in as a king in Jesus' day, when you ride on a white stallion with a huge brigade of pomp and circumstance, I know today you'd have a Lamborghini or a car that has the doors that go sideways and up, right? You'd have the horn that would play a little song whenever you'd hit it, right? You'd have ticker tape. Uh, people would be shouting. Your, that, that, that's what a king, a coronation of a king would be, right? But he's riding a donkey. And now, when I've traveled in the Middle East, people that are not wealthy still drive donkeys today on the side of the interstate. In my time in Egypt, uh, you would literally be driving down in a modern car going 70 miles an hour, but then you'd have to hit the brakes because somebody was riding on their donkey, all right? And so Jesus is choosing to ride a donkey, not a stallion, a donkey. Why? Because it demonstrated this, that he was not coming as a king with a sword, but he was coming in humility to die. And this also fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, some spoken 500 years prior by the prophet Zechariah when he predicted the messianic king. Zechariah 9, 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus was fulfilling the promise long told by the prophets of old that he was coming to save the world from their sins. And what we see here is this, the countless prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his birth, in his living, uh, in his coronation, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection. It shows that God keeps his promises. He promised the giving of the Holy Spirit, which 40 days after his resurrection was given to the church and is given today to give you power. We have the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit. We have another promise that is yet to be and we know is coming, and that is Jesus Christ is coming again. God keeps his promise. How many of you need to hear that this morning? 
When life just seems like it's, the wheels are falling off the vehicle, right? Uh, the donkey doesn't want to go. He may be like, I'm not even in a vehicle. I feel like I'm riding a donkey this week, right? Okay, the donkey doesn't want to go forward anymore, right? How many of you need to hear this morning that God keeps his promises? Turn to the person next to you and say, God keeps his promises, right? And then ask, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because we can say it, but do we believe it? God indeed keeps his promises. He says and he does it. It might not be the way that you think it's going to happen, but good thing we're not God, right? Sometimes we can fall in that spot where we think we can be, but we are not God. For his ways are perfect. God keeps his promises. We live in a weary world that needs to hear it. God keeps his promises. We live in a world, though, we live in a world where even followers of Christ, you want to live life as if God's going to intervene and you're going to hear his voice and you're going to live accordingly to that. But I'm going to tell you that you cannot know the voice of God if you're not in the word of God. Did you know that? You won't know his voice if it's the enemy's voice, your own voice, somebody else's voice, if you're not in the word of God. The word of God allows you to hear the voice of God in your everyday life. The church is filled with people who speak Christian words without knowing God's word, and it's to their own detriment. Their own detriment. The word of God, we need to know it, we need to follow it, we need to trust it, because God keeps his promises. We won't believe his promises if we're not spending time in his presence, in his word, and yes, living in the fulfilling empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And the people of Israel, they knew this. They had heard the teachings of Jesus, been teaching for three years. They had witnessed his miracles. They have seen the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were beginning to think, could this indeed be the one? Could this be the one? Jesus came for his purpose to fulfill prophecies. Second, he came to receive worship, to receive worship. Luke chapter 19, verse 35 then they brought it to Jesus. They brought the colt to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes, some of you have coats, on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes or their coats on the road. And now he who came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. The last time we heard glory in the highest was when the shepherds were in the fields and the angels began to declare the Savior is born. Now we're hearing the same words as the Savior is going to inaugurate the kingdom of God. People saw Jesus coming down the road on the colt and they thought, yes, the long prophesied Messiah was coming. For three years we've heard these words. And they threw their, their clothes and their coats on the side of the road. This was an act of submission. They were, they were saying, we submit to you as king. John chapter 12, verse 13, in John's account they also talk about how people cut down the palm branches. This is why we call it Palm Sunday, the palm branches. And they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. These people began to praise and worship with a joyful and loud voice. It was raucous praise. It was loud. And they were worshiping correctly. 
our Savior King. Amen, church? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory in the highest. The crowd was correctly praising Jesus. But the reason was misplaced. They thought Jesus was the promised king who would establish a earthly rule. Who would take up the sword and overthrow the Roman government. They were excited because they thought finally we're going to get the Israel we deserved Finally, we're going to get to Israel that's, uh, that's out from underneath the thumb of oppression. But they were thinking it from earthly standards. But Jesus had a different agenda. He had something much bigger in mind than a physical throne, but a heavenly throne. And instead of going to Jerusalem to declare war on Rome, he was going to be executed to die for the sins of the world. The praise was on the right person, but the reason was a bit misplaced. And we have to take note of that when we praise, right? We have to take note that when we read our Bible, right? Today, we can, we can read the Bible of the right Savior. We can worship the right Savior. But our motives, we can want something completely different. God, I'm going to worship you hard this morning because I'm going to treat you like a genie. And if I worship really, really, really hard, then I hope that you answer what I want. Right? We've all done that. You know what God wants? He wants us to spend time with him and worship him because he's God and he's the greatest good we could have in our life no matter what's going on in life. Amen, church? Our worship today, today in the church, knows that Jesus is King and Lord, meaning he's leader. We can praise all day and all night, but if he's not Lord, that means the leader of our life, then we are just doing self-righteous aerobics, right? God's like, seriously, if we get all worked up, but he's not Lord of our life, he's like, you think you're impressing me? Like, you're not God, right? He's God, right? Same people, by the way, that are praising Jesus in the streets, saying Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, would be just a few days later saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It's because they were worshiping with the wrong agenda. Praise is often engaged from outward passion, and it should be outward, and it should be passionate. But the Lord wants most of all is this, the heart. He wants our heart. And Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's coming out of our mouth? When we praise him with our lips, may we praise him with the totality of our life. When we're passionate about the things of this world, make sure it's not misplaced, make sure it's not misspent to where we're only giving the leftovers to God. Listen, when we come together on Sunday morning and we praise and we sing, you know, when we sing, we're praising God. I hope it's never out of the leftovers of the week before. I hope it's the overflow of what God has done. Jesus came for his purpose. He keeps his promise. We worship in response to those promises. But you know what his agenda does as well? It offends the self-righteous. It offends the self-righteous. Luke, uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. The stones would cry out. The self-righteous religious group of Pharisees, they were not happy at all what they were seeing. 
Jesus rebuked them. Uh, they, they don't know what they're saying. They're getting too, they're getting too rambunctious. Self-righteous people are a killjoy. You know when they come in the room, because it's when things get a little, you know, exciting, when things get a little happy, you kind of turn over to them like, oh, they angry, right? Right, you know what I'm talking about. Whether it's, a, whether it's at home, whether it's at church, wherever it's at, people that are self-righteous, meaning they want to place their righteousness under, they want you to be under their authority of their self-righteousness, they're just never happy. Self-righteousness is the thought that you have to prove yourself to God by your works. And by the way, when we live in a self-righteous, legalistic mentality, we talked, talked about it, we were blue in the face the last three weeks, right? It becomes a competition against your peers. It's actually, you begin to debate who's the greatest. I didn't include it in our text today because of time, uh, but in the moment in the lead up to the cross, the disciples actually started debating who the greatest was. Why? Because they were trying to prove themselves to God through their self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, it's a dwelling place for insecurity, that you're never good enough. Self-righteousness breeds insecurity, and insecurity left unabated will attack others. When you're in a room that is joyful and a self-righteous person comes in, it's like the record, the record needle coming off the record. You feel the radiation of negativity. And the Pharisees, they approach people in this way. And they say, how could you? And you know it's self-righteous religion when the fingers pointed this way and say, how could you? Because our Lord says this, come to me, those who are weary, and I will give you Rest, and I'll give you rest. Big difference. So the self-righteous Pharisees, they heard worship, and they said, knock that racket off. But Jesus is like, hey, guess what's gonna happen? If I tell, if I shush all these people right now, guess what's gonna happen? The rocks literally on the side of the road are gonna start praising. At Kenosha City Church, may we worship Jesus as king and spirit of truth. We must not stop. At Kenosha City Church, may we preach the good news of Jesus Christ. We must not stop. At Kenosha City Church, may we take ourselves less seriously and God so seriously. We must not stop. Amen? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Period. Jesus came for his purpose. But if Jesus has a purpose, you better believe it's going to be opposed. And that's number two. The enemy seeks to disrupt God's plan. The enemy seeks to disrupt God's plan. If you're taking notes, the first thing we see in that is when the enemy seeks to disrupt God's plan, there's a defection from God's truth. There's a defection from God's truth. Luke chapter 22 now. We're gonna skip a little bit ahead here as we get closer to the cross and resurrection next week. Luke chapter 22, verse one. So again, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. So he came into Jerusalem on a Monday, okay? When they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, it's on a Monday. We are now arriving on Wednesday, Thursday-ish, okay, in the week. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. So that'd be on Thursday, the Passover. So we're about Wednesday here. The chief of priests and scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of people. All right, so the, again, the, the Passover uh, celebrated the uh, leaving of Egypt, and that kicks off this whole festival of unleavened bread. All right, And so the religious authorities during this time were trying to figure out how to arrest and put Jesus to death. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan, oh, here he is. Then Satan 
entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief of priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray them when the crowd was not present. So Satan enters the equation. The, the Pharisees breathe out an evil plan. By the way, the enemy can hear that, okay? And he's like, who can I disrupt? And he, he, goes, he goes for something that's gonna cause massive disruption. That's what Satan does. Satan looks, how can I create massive disruption? And so Satan enters the equation by entering into one of the disciples. How can he cause great disruption? Let's go to one of the 12, right? Let's go to the core. Now Judas, the name Judas, has, besides the 80s man, Judas Priest, uh, has, uh, has become synonymous with a backstabber. All right, if you say, oh man, that person's just a Judas, that means they were somebody you trusted and they stabbed you in the back, okay? But Judas was actually a disciple. Uh, Judas uh, walked with Jesus day in and day out. Judas, for three years, heard all of Jesus' teaching. Judas saw the miracles of Jesus. Judas was trusted amongst his peers so much so, he was the treasurer. And yet, he betrayed him. After all this, after all Judas went through with Jesus and his group of disciples, he decided that 30 pieces of silver and the prominence of being accepted by the religious order was worth more than what he knew in his Savior. Now, for 2,000 years, people have been debating the motive of, G of, of Judas. We can debate all day long what the motive of Judas is, and theologians have been doing it for 2,000 years, so okay. And here's the deal. You can find some motive. There's greed, you know, that he wanted to be popular. He wanted to, you know, it, here's what we know. You can debate motive all day long, but what we know is this. Satan entered Judas, and Judas is gonna portray Jesus. That's what we know, right? Sometimes we get lost in what is his motive? Was Judas a Christian? Again, people are debating that. Was he a Christian or not a Christian? Here's what we know. Satan entered Judas, and he's gonna betray Jesus. Don't miss that. Now, here's where we need to pause for a second. Satan entering Judas. Can a Christian be possessed by the devil? My answer is this, through the totality of scriptures, is a true follower of Christ cannot. Because when the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you, the devil cannot come to reside in you. However, a follower of Christ can be oppressed by the devil, did you get that? Because if you're a follower of Christ, you don't have to use the Holy Spirit, right? You can stray from the word of God, and what can happen is you can be a follower of Christ, you begin to borrow things from darkness, uh, you can borrow ideologies from the world, uh, and in this borrowing of things, you're opening your life up to the oppression of the enemy. So it could be evil things, mix of witchcraft, or, or new age ideology, you name it. You're opening yourself up to massive demonic deception and oppression. So Satan entered Judas, trying to blind everyone around Judas to be disunified and fearful of the truth. And that's what we see. We see that Judas, uh, we see the defection from the truth in Judas, but we also see a disunity from the truth in the rest of the disciples. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. We are now 
uh, going to fast forward to the upper room. So Judas, Satan enters Judas. Now Jesus is preparing what we call the Last Supper, okay? Communion, all right? And Jesus is going to prepare his disciples for what is to come. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And he, that's Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, the cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue amongst themselves by which, it, which, it could, which of them it could be who was going to do it. If you've ever seen the painting of the Last Supper, you see they're arguing amongst each other, like, who is it? Who's going to betray each other? So get this. Let's not miss this. Satan enters Judas previously, right? Okay. Then he shows up to the first communion. Somebody demonically oppressed was at the table at the first communion. Let that sink in. The Lord's Supper, of which we celebrate once a month here at Kenosha City Church, uh, it, is a, it is a commemoration of, of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The, the shed body and the blood. It's not the body and blood of Christ. It represents the body and blood of Christ. It reminds us to unify us of why we do this. Why do we do this? We have a Savior who died for us on the cross, who rose from the dead, who has given us a mission, and who's coming back. That's why we are to remember it. But what is mind-blowing with this, at the first communion, which is the template for our unity of why we do what we do, there was somebody demon-possessed. His name was Judas. He was, what he was about to do is going to bring disunity now make no mistake, Jesus knew what was happening. Verse 21, he said the betrayer's at the table. And the statement was absolutely shocking to the disciples. How could an attack come from within, they're thinking. But the attack wasn't coming. When we read the text here, it's in the present tense. Betraying. It had already begun. Listen, from the very beginning of the church, we face the threat of Satan hitting followers of Jesus Christ. The mission of Jesus Christ today is more, uh, uh, is more at threat today by bad doctrine, the, by the mixing of world ideologies, and by people living by their own authority, not the authority of Jesus Christ himself, by his word. Communion is our reminder that we are not our own. Communion is our reminder that we stand under authority of the word of God and empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Communion is our, is our reminder that church is not to our own making. It's not, we just don't go up here and spout off, right? We are to be faithful in what we've been entrusted with. Communion reminds us of that. Communion reminds us if there's anything in our life that we need to get right with God. It's a reminder to stick to the gospel, be gospel advancers, and never hinder the gospel, never. And Judas, while he took communion, while he took communion, was plotting his rebellion and how he was going to give Jesus over. After the supper, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus told them to pray against temptation. They fell asleep. And finally, we look at this, Luke chapter 22, verse 47. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on Thursday night, 
while he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. And he came near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Jesus was not betrayed by a knife or by a mob that beat him to the ground, but by a kiss. By a kiss on the cheek. And this sent the disciples into a tailspin. It sent their focus off the gospel and onto fear. And this is a warning for us. When we, when we face a society that does not want the things of God, uh, when we face uh, instances in our life, hardships in our life, it's going to want to pull us away from the gospel. It's going to pull us away from our focus that should be on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is a warning because what we see is this, is that Satan comes to disrupt so that we, maybe not in our hearts, but in our actions, deny the Savior. Luke chapter 22, 54, this is after Jesus was arrested. Jesus said that they would all disperse. Peter didn't believe it. So they seized him, verse 54, chapter 22, verse 54, led him away and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light, he looked closely at him, and she said, this man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. I don't know him. Verse 58, but after a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not. Verse 59, about an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he is also Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he, how, what he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went, out, went outside and wept bitterly. We know from another account, Peter got so upset and that third time he began to swear. Because Satan entered into the core and that person began to deny Christ and go away from the truth, it caused dysfunction among the 12 to where they would even say to those who are perishing without God, I don't know him. That's the enemy's job. That's what he wants to do. And he can care less how to do it. He's not a gentleman. He's a liar and a destroyer. So we see here, Peter, who previously said he would never betray the Savior in the aftermath of his betrayal, is now apparently at risk of outright denial of Christ Jesus. May this be our warning, that we need to follow Christ no matter what? When Satan comes to town, he causes confusion in those, and he wants those to forget who Christ is. He wants us to forget that we live under the authority of Scripture. He wants us to forget about the mandate we have for the gospel. Because the main point of Jesus on this world was to seek and save the lost, period. Church isn't meant to be here to give us therapy. It's not here to give us a therapeutic, moralistic way of living to get through life and to become rich and to live life happy. Listen, 
it's better that we live miserable now so that we can be happy in eternity. But listen, we're not necessarily getting said that we're gonna be miserable. I'm just saying if our lot becomes miserable, just know that we have joy in eternity, right? And the error that we can have here is making church more palatable in a society that wants nothing to do with God. That doesn't mean we become jerks about it. That doesn't mean that we, uh, we get pompous about it. That doesn't mean that we're, that we're harsh with people. No, in grace and mercy, we're gonna plead the gospel of Jesus Christ with anybody and everybody in our life. We're gonna do it gently, but we're gonna do it relentlessly and without compromise with the mission of Jesus Christ that he's given us to seek and save the lost. So, point number three, as we close. You have a savior to follow. You have a savior to follow. We have a savior to follow. Next week, we're gonna talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. That's so funny. I just have to time out here. All my praise team just steps up out of the, out of the uh, worship center. I said, we have a savior to follow. I told them that's the point. They need to get up and go back there so they can worship at the end of service today. I guess the joke was on them. Anyway, so sorry. Anyway, <laughs> we have a savior to follow. Next week, we'll talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. We'll talk about this in more detail then. But after the denial of Peter, Jesus was flogged. He was mocked. He was crucified. And this was not the way that the Jewish people thought would happen to the Messiah. But praise God that his ways are way bigger than our understanding. Jesus said in John 3, 16, earlier in his ministry, actually a Pharisee named Nicodemus came to him in the night. He didn't want to be seen by his peers because they know they'd cast him out. Nicodemus had serious questions and he says, how must I be born again? What's, how, like, how, how can I be saved? And Jesus said this, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, John 3, 16 and 17, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know what I love about John three sixteen? It's whosoever, whosoever, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever, who is the whosoever? I've said this before, I am looking at the whosoever's. You may be in the church for all your life and you give your life to Christ as a kid, you're a whosoever. You may be in the church for the first time uh, in a long time or ever, you are a whosoever. The bottom line is this, and the great equalizer is this, Jesus Christ went to the cross so that the world could know him and have an opportunity to be saved by him. The whosoever's, how does the whosoever come into right relationship? Belief, belief on the name of Jesus Christ. Belief in what he did on the cross and his resurrection. Whosoever, are you a whosoever? Yes, you are a whosoever, but the whosoever must believe. Notice this whosoever, mm, I love this. I know we'll talk more about the crucifixion next week, but let's just go to the cross right now. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. We see Jesus being crucified between two criminals. In another uh, account, another gospel, we see both of these criminals are hurling insults at Jesus. But we're at a point now in the crucifixion where they're all facing death. And one of the criminals has a change of heart. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him when they were arrived at the place called Skull. They crucified him there along with the criminals, 
one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they're doing. Verse 39, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross is a whosoever. You mean to tell me the thief on the cross who has no prior works, who has no testimony, you mean to tell me he, when he went to the cross and, and he started hurling insults at Jesus, at the last moment, he's like, wait a minute. Remember me. He's a whosoever. You're a whosoever. Whosoever believes in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Whosoever places their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and rose from the dead will be saved. Romans 3.23 says, For we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that, well, we got our life together. Okay, I'm gonna die for you now. No, it's while the criminal is literally hurling insults, probably spitting at Jesus, had a change of heart an hour later and said, remember me. And he said, okay, I'll see you in paradise. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned, right? Fall short of the glory of God. The wages, that means the result of that is death, spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's giving us a gift. The whosoever's, you must believe. Okay, what's that mean? How do I receive? I'm a whosoever, you're a whosoever. How do we receive? This is how you know you're saved. If you've never done this, you can do this today. I'm gonna give you an opportunity in just a moment. But Romans 10, 9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth, that means telling God, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here it is, you will be saved. You will be saved. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it is so good to have peace with God. So this morning, if you're uncertain you have a relationship with Jesus, Right now is your time. You're whosoever. Place your faith and trust in him right now. It's not about what you did or what's going on. It's about who Jesus is, what he's already done. Receive it. So Father, we pray right now that indeed, if there's anybody in this room, they would receive it. They would receive your salvation. That they would place their faith and trust in him alone. As we continue to pray, I just wanna to talk to all the whosoever's in this room, but I wanna to talk specifically to the whosoever's that have never placed your faith and trust personally in Christ. You may have heard about it, but you've, you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your savior personally. You need to personally do that today to receive it. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Just tell him right now, Lord Jesus, I wanna place my faith and trust in you alone, that you died on the cross, that you rose from the dead. 
as people in here in this room are preparing to give their life to Christ, let me just help you talk to God right now. Maybe you've never prayed before. And I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pray a prayer that you can pray along with me. This prayer doesn't save you. I'm just helping you communicate to God. He's the one that saves you, all right? So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I realize I've done wrong in my life. I realize I can't save myself. Help me receive you now. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for raising from the dead. I place my full faith and trust in you alone. Lord Jesus, save me. As we still pray, I just wanna to talk to you. If, you. if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, guess what? The Bible says you're born again. The Bible says uh, that you've been made new. As we continue to pray today, I want uh, this whole church right now to, to ask yourself, who am I gonna invite for Easter next week? The greatest celebration of the empty grave. So Father, I pray that you place a name on each one of these people's minds today. That Lord Jesus, may we take serious the mission to seek and save the lost. Who is it that we're gonna bring to church next week? God, calm all fears, calm lethargy, uh, calm disappointment. Calm all of that and know that you're in control. Let us be available and let's watch you work. Let's leave the results to you. Let's leave the results to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.